0: Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame.
1: Welcome to another episode of Global Stage, a podcast produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies at the University of Notre Dame, and an initiative by doctoral students affiliated to the Institute. I am Isabel Guisa-Gómez, a PhD student in political science and peace studies. Today, I'm so pleased to discuss Lethal Violence in Post-Conflict Settings with a special guest. Juan Albarracin Dierolf is assistant professor of political science at the University of Illinois, Chicago and research affiliate to the Notre Dame Violence and Transitional Justice Lab, hosted at the Kellogg Institute. His research focuses on the limitations on democratic citizenship in Latin America, in particular on the threats to the exercise of political and civil rights in cases of mass-scale violence like Brazil and Colombia. Juan is a scholar of criminal and political violence, criminal governance, and political institutions. Most recently, Juan has published a series of co-authored journal articles and is working on a co-authored book project on the local determinants and trajectories of lethal violence against grassroots leaders, also known as líderes sociales in Spanish, in Posacor Colombia. And this will be the focus of our conversation. Juan, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you, Isabel. Thank you so much for this invitation. It's really a pleasure to be here today.
1: It's our pleasure. So let's start by covering some basic ground laid down in your collaborative research agenda. Societies transitioning from civil war usually face the threat of continued violence, and we can think of many examples, like genocidal violence in Rwanda following the signing of a peace agreement, or violence executed by the Maoist rebels to maintain their support bases in the Palyptos conflict elections, and even violence exerted by organized criminal groups in Central American countries, such as El Salvador or Guatemala, decades after salient peace processes. Most recently, Colombia has underwent increasing assassinations against grassroots leaders involved in peace-building efforts after the signing of the 2016 peace agreement between the government and the former guerrilla group far EP. So Juan, tell us please, how is this type of lethal violence unfolding in post-accord Colombia distinct from other forms of violence seen in other post-conflict contexts? In other words, what distinguishes the Colombian case from other post-conflict cases that have also wrestled with large-scale violence following successful peace negotiation?
0: So I think what has been distinctive of this wave of post-conflict, post-accord violence in Colombia has been this Particular targeting of social movement leaders or líderes sociales, how how they're kind of grouped into uh, in Colombia, and just for um, explanation, líderes sociales is a very open, broad concept. It it encompasses a lot of different types of social movements, from um, movements based on ethnicity. And race, like Afro-Colombian movements and indigenous movements, uh, communities in Colombia, to human rights defenders, to LGBTQ leaders, uh, environmental leaders. So it's it's a, it's a big and, and very broad category. But what we've seen in Colombia, unfortunately, after the peace agreement with the FARC is a dramatic increase in the assassination of, of these leaders. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, but uh, initially there, there was this idea that these leaders are being assassinated because of conflicts in illicit markets. And that's basically the position that uh, government, the Colombian state had, and also some other academics and members of the media. And as we explored this type of violence, we saw, well, yes, there is a part of it that is related to illicit economies, but... A big significant uh, factor behind this violence as well is, is also there's also a political logic behind it. So I'm not sure actually, if what we're seeing in Colombia is unique to Colombia, but I'm what we're seeing is that as a, a form of, of violence that existed in the past, transformed and an in post-accord Colombia, it is impacting these specific populations. So there is a political logic behind it. There's kind of a, a transformation of the political violence of the past into this new form of political violence in, in, in the present. And I'm actually quite curious now to know if what we're seeing in Colombia is actually observed in other cases. I, I think we, we might actually see that in, in some of the other post-Civil War cases. We see similar patterns, and that's something that we want to explore further in, in, in the book.
1: Yeah. So thinking about how this wave of violence against grassroots leaders is different from past experience in Colombia. I would like to ask you, how do you see that this ongoing violence is different from previous waves of my scale violence in, in the country's history? Because Colombia has been portrayed as an example of chronic large-scale political violence by scholarly and journalistic accounts. Indeed, the country has been trapped in recurring cycles of political violence since its birth as a republic in the 19th century. And since the mid-20th century, the contemporary armed conflict, or even armed conflicts in plural, we can say, has involved several guerrilla groups, paramilitary groups, state armed forces, drug cartels, and other organized criminal groups. So what features make it distinct from the previous violence against civilians
0: observed during the Civil War? So, there's actually a two-parter to this because there's some, in many ways, it's it's different and in, in other ways, it's it's similar, maybe not to violence during conflicts, but what we're observing today in Colombia, unfortunately, reflects uh, other forms of post-conflict violence that we've seen in, in different periods of Colombia. So, as you mentioned, Colombia has gone through all of these cycles of, of, of peace and war since, well, basically since we're a republic. But in recent Kind of moments of post-conflict, we've seen similar things. So I'm going to refer to that a little later. But in general terms, we see differences be against with the violence that we observed during conflict. And, when, and there's a huge literature on in Colombia and how civilians were able to resist or not, if they how they were targeted or not. And this is basically inspired and, 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 and by models of, of, of civilian victimization and, and other forms of like micro. Uh, analysis of micro-level violence associated with the, the kind of the uh, statis calivos agenda of, of, of civil war studies. And, and there's an abundance of, 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 of and really good research showing these patterns of civilian victimization in Colombia. And But these are very much associated to the logics of the civil war, of the logics of controlling certain territories, the logics of of how these territories are disputed by different actors during the civil war between FARC guerrillas or other guerrillas, paramilitaries and and, and the state. What we're seeing now is different in that the logic of the assassination does follow a a logic of political control. So in most of the municipalities that we see this violence happening, the violence results from attempts by pre-existing elites who had controlled uh, the politics of these municipalities and they feel threatened by what happened with the peace agreement. So the the peace agreement represents this, this moment, this kind of changing point in the power balances of these small municipalities. And it's exactly that shock of the peace agreement that unleashes this violence. So it it is related to previous forms of violence and that these are municipalities that are usually where there was a FARC presence, where there was also disputes, where there was also civilian victimization during the Civil War. But it is the action of the peace process that unleashes the dynamics of the violence that we, we we see later on. This exact kind of pattern was observed previously in Colombia. So when we see kind of previous attempts uh, at peace in the 1980s and that led to the formation of political party like the Unión Patriotica, well, the violence that we observed against the Unión Patriotica, this mass uh, and systematic violence against the Unión Patriotica also responded to these local power dynamics. So the Unión Patriotica was, and there was research by by, by Avi Steele and others who show this, well, it, it was targeted specifically in municipalities where it representative threat to local elites, uh, an electoral threat to local elites. So it is similar to forms of post-conflict violence that we've seen in the past in Colombia, with, of course, the differences that this new peace agreement and the new context in Colombia bring. But it's different from the dynamics of civilian victimization during civil war. That is, there are more kind of in, in, in this context of kind of disputes by armed actors to control a specific territory for strategic reasons in war.
1: Yeah, so following this line of thought of the perennial quest for peace building in Colombia and how the 2016 peace agreement performed as a sort of exogenous shock that somehow stimulated violence against grassroots leaders. In your papers, you describe how this agreement sparked grassroots leaders' engagement in peace building initiatives to change local configurations of power and wealth. And indeed, the 2016 peace agreement promised not only to redress Civil War wrongdoing through criminal accountability, truth seeking mechanisms, and reparations, but also to address long running socioeconomic inequalities through measures like land distribution, enhanced political inclusion for marginalised communities, and illicit crop substitution programs. So along those lines, we see that the core envisioned participatory mechanisms for local development, uh, like PEDED, that's the way that is called in Spanish, and other participatory institutions to enable rural communities to replace illicit crops, such as coca or marijuana growing, with agricultural activities. However, those peace-building initiatives Unintentionally, might have motivated lethal violence against grassroots leaders by local elites who saw potential losses of political power and, and economic resources. Why was that the case? Could you please tell us more about the political rationale behind this type of violence? Because it sounds sort of surprising that peace promises sparked unintentionally and directly
0: violence. So when you think about what what happens with the peace agreement, you usually think about peace agreements. At least in Colombia, these are these are these national agreements. They're negotiating at at a national stage between the national government, and in this case, it was the FARC, which was kind of a, an insurgency, a guerrilla group that was had a, a broad. Territorial presence across Colombia. And we think about these as, and they are national agreements, they're negotiated by by actors at the national stage. But as you well mentioned, some of the aspects of the peace agreement have profound implications for local politics. It is interesting because when the government was negotiating with the FARC, it was very adamant that it was not negotiating Colombia's political or economic system. And for the most part, it it, it is true. I mean, the the big contours of of Colombia's uh, economic and political system remained as they were before the agreement, but they did negotiate some provisions for greater political inclusion, for greater inclusion in economic development, particularly rural development at the local level. So these provisions, and I, I don't think when they were negotiated, people were thinking about the political implications at the local level of these provisions. Well, they they essentially, on the one side, empower some local actors, social movements that have been historically marginalized from power at the local level in Colombia. In some municipalities, so they they give them new opportunities to engage politically. By that program, for example, it's not only about listing demands for development, but it's also it also includes a, a profoundly participatory element to it. So you're bringing these communities into the decision-making process and the allocation of resources that were used to be well, at least in these municipalities, that were highly restrictive to a certain political group. When you think about The Penis, for example, well, these crop substitution efforts, well, they're also altering local power dynamics. So all of these measures strengthen the power of local historically marginalized groups and at the same time motivated. The peace agreement was seen by these groups as a moment in which they should and could mobilize for greater participation in political power. So, you have these impulses coming kind of from above to these bottom-up actors who effectively did mobilize as part of a kind of the promise of of peace. But at the same time, you have these local elites who are not part of the negotiation, who now see their control over local politics threatened by these, these mobilizing actors. And of course, these actors are, not all social movements were equally strong across the territory. There's some, uh, Lideres Sociales, there's some municipalities where these movements were more of a credible threat to these established elites. So what we see is like in a context in which at the local level, and this is a very local story, you had these forms of subnational competitive authoritarianism. You had these, these structures in which you had elections, you had Elections that had certain institutional characteristics, but through informal mechanisms, local elites managed to make incredibly uneven playing fields. Well, the peace agreement kind of altered that. And the way these political elites react to this kind of threat and this challenge from these mobilizing social movements that are credibly challenging their power at the local level is through violence. And in, in some of these areas, you still have armed actors non-state armed actors that are around and available. Many of them have very strong connections with with these local elites. So it is, unfortunately, there's very little cost to using violence as a way to stop these mobilizing uh, social movements. So in in a way, the promise of greater inclusion, the, the kind of the mobilization aspect that came with the peace agreement, well, didn't take into account these local elites that are willing to use violence in order to prevent this from happening at the local level.
1: Yeah. So this leads me to another question related to an underlying concept in your work, which is competitive authoritarianism. And basically, you and your co-authors argue that competitive authoritarianism refers to subnational authoritarian orders nested into democratic countries, and the literature has already explained and introduced this concept. But although Colombia cannot be categorized as a fully-fledged democracy, given civil war dynamics, And significant limits to political inclusion and competition, it cannot be classified as an authoritarian regime either. Mm. So for instance, well-established data on democracy like VDEM show that the country has significantly improved in the quality of democracy since the early 20th century and particularly has strengthened crucial dimensions of political democracy like inclusion and competition in the last three decades. So why do you argue that Colombia is a case of competitive authoritarianism?
0: <laughs> so I mean clarify that. We don't think Colombia as a whole is a competitive authoritarian regime. It is Colombia is at least an electoral democracy and it has been for a long time. So on average Elections in Colombia are free and fair, and the people who are elected actually get to rule, to govern. So, on average, you have in, in Colombia this is electoral democracy, but as you, you pointed out, subnationally, this might look differently. So, there are regions in Colombia where you have at the subnational level, at the local level, very consolidated forms of electoral democracy. But you do have, in some pockets of Colombia, in some municipalities, these forms of subnational authoritarianism, and we we call them competitive authoritarianism because of the the institutional nature of Colombia. You cannot fully change formal institutional rules. So every single municipality in Colombia has to have elections. Every single there in every municipality, and these are run by the national elections authority. Every single municipality in Colombia, you have multiple parties competing, at least formally, for political power. So you have these structures of democracy there, at least in the formal aspect. But informally, these local elites have figured out ways through violence and other informal practices like clientelism to make the electoral playing field very uneven and make it so that some groups have no realistic chance of being elected in a fair election. So... What you see in Colombia is kind of patchwork. You have an yeah. electorally democratic country in which there's regions and in particular municipalities where you have these forms of competitive authoritarianism that are sustained by the very informal practices. So we bring these kind of research agendas together when we're trying to understand what the source of violence in post court Colombia is because we bring this idea of competitive authoritarianism that was fought as a concept for national level analysis of the, this concept by, by Levitsky and Wei. And we take that and add it to this other agenda about subnational authoritarianism that was very particularly strong in cases of uh, federal democracies like Argentina. So and these are cases in which in subnational level political elites could fiddle with institutions and made subnational entities profoundly authoritarian. We so, well, you can't do that in Colombia but you do have something similar so we have these forms of competitive subnational authoritarianism that are very informal in nature which does not mean that they're not that not real and existing and happen in some areas and in, and it's these forms of these subnational let's call them political regimes uh, that structure the access of power at the local level that are the context in which this violence is happening and when you have that context and then you have this shock of exogenous shock, if you want to call it, if it's truly exogenous, we'll see, but <laughs> you have the shock of the peace agreement, these two things come together and then violence results from it. So it's the the violence is, is a mechanism in which these political elites and subnational local competitive authoritarianism, competitive authoritarianism use to defend their these p- local political orders.
1: So let's switch gears to the rich empirical evidence on the local determinants and trajectories of lethal violence against racial leaders across Colombian municipalities, which is offered by you and your co-authors. So could you please tell us what political features do you see municipalities showing higher numbers of assassination as opposed to municipalities recording lower numbers?
0: So I think one of the most impacting empirical results that we find in our work is that the stronger the electoral left is in a municipality, the more likely and the more uh, frequent the violence against social leaders. So as we see it as well, if you have a strong democratic left at the local level, that is a it is not only a strong indicator of the existence of powerful social movements in these municipalities, and, and there's abundance of literature like um, Carroll's book on violent democratization in, in Colombia that shows that the social movement at the local level are kind of the basis of power of these leftists political parties. So when you have strong leftist political parties that are that manage to be electorally meaningful, well that's where you see more violence in post-accord Colombia. And we see that as, a, as an indicator of, of a credible threat to these local uh, authoritarian elites. So when they see that these social movements and these historical marginalized peoples through leftist political parties have a realistic chance of actually gaining some power at the local level, that's when they react with violence so uh, that is a particularly uh, devastating result but it shows this these dynamics happening and it, and it is a, uh, when you look at the at the empirical results it, it's dramatic so for a, the left has not been particularly strong electorally in colombia for a long time that's changing right now but you see that even with very Small electoral gains of the left; the these elites react mm. very violently to these advances by the, by the political. So that's one of the indicators, and there's other indicators that we we think are associated with the existence of local competitive authoritarianism, like intermediate levels of, of electoral competition, lower levels of political participation in elections, and those are related also to the occurrence of of, of this type of violence. Other. Conventional indicators are related to this violence as well, so that the presence of illicit economies and illicit markets are positively correlated with with this violence as well, which other important uh, analysis of this violence have also shown.
1: So as you mentioned earlier, when we were talking more about these broader questions uh, of your research agenda, you said that scholars, government officials, and media outlets have tried to account for these assassinations of Colombian grassroots leaders by emphasizing the role of drug cartels, FARC splinter groups, and organized criminal groups in taking over territorial power vacuums that were left by the former guerrilla group FARCB. So it is a sort of a rival explanation that states that grassroots leaders have been targeted by these non-state armed groups in their quest for controlling territories left and ruled after the demobilization and disarmament of the FARC. And you and your colleagues address this concern by showing that social criminal explanation is a pathway followed in some cases, but it does not debunk your political account, which is also found in other instances. So, what accounts for such variation in pathways across Colombian municipalities? Could you please describe how a municipality following the criminal pathway looks like in comparison to another municipality going through the political road, or even a third municipality that shows the, the two pathways intertwined.
0: Mm-hmm. So, and this is a point we make in, in, in part of our work. We don't claim that we have the explanation for all the post-conflict violence, post-accord violence that we observe in Colombia. And I think that, that would be uh, somewhat complicated because at least when I think of Colombia, but I think this is equally valid for other contexts of post core violence. These are incredibly subnationally diverse countries. So each of these municipalities has uh, their different contexts in which this violence can take place. So that that's why we develop or we, we kind of had this idea that there's different pathways that lead kind of to the same result. So in that way, we're thinking, oh, th- this is perfectly possible that some of the violence that we observe is the result of competition by criminal groups for the control of illicit markets. So we see that in in particular in one of our case studies in the northeastern region of Colombia, where right now there's a coca cocaine production hub close to the Venezuelan border. And there's an intense competition by different actors to control routes and access to these coca leaf and, and coca producing areas. So there we see... Less of a dynamic of they're killing social leaders because they are advancing lo- uh, in forms of political power, but more of they're killing social leaders because they are standing in the way of some of these actors' control over illicit markets, uh, particularly the, the 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 coca cocaine illicit market. So that's a, that's a one pathway, and there's other pathways that we see more kind of more political, uh, particularly in, in the northern Cauca region, where we see this kind of huge pre-existing activism by Afro-Colombian indigenous movements who have historically challenged these local forms of power and where you see kind of local elites reacting to this mobilization by these social movements in the context of, of, of post-accord promises. So they, these are kind of two, if you think about like uh, extreme cases of these pathways and that they resemble these pathways more directly, but I think we could think about more cases, more municipalities, this is more of a continuum where you can see mixtures of these uh, of these pathways coming. And it actually, over time, these things get more complicated. So some of our cases where it was initially more about uh, this, this political logic of violence, we've observed that uh, through the transformations of, of illicit markets, the illicit aspect of it is becoming more relevant. So these are also very dynamic contexts. So we... You, you, in that sense, that's why we think about it. We have to think about these different pathways. We have to think about all these different potential explanations. So we don't see them as alternative competing explanations. We see them as explanations that build on one another. And my other research comes here in, into play. And, and we see this more kind of in this tradition of, of criminal politics. And a lot of our explanation is kind of this, this based on this criminal politics, in which we think of organized criminal groups, not as kind of these as these actors are completely devoid of any political interest and that are completely separated from political dynamics. But a lot of these criminal groups that also have interest in controlling these these illicit markets are deeply connected with political dynamics. So you can't really separate the criminal, in quotation marks, from the political. In fact, the political is and control over politics in these areas is necessary in order to have control of the criminal. So these things intertwine quite dramatically and there's abundance of research. Gustavo Duncan's work comes to mind right now, but there's more of it, Francisco Gutierrez, that shows that at the local level, at least, in many of these municipalities, these criminal groups, separating political elites from criminal groups is extremely difficult. They're mostly kind of the same. So, our attempt at explanation is saying, well, we have to understand the political role of organized crime in in Colombia's peripheries in order to understand this violence. And by proposing this more political logic, we're kind of trying to overcorrect maybe (laughs) and say, yeah, you know, it's not only about controlling just the illicit market. You need to think about the politics as well. And yeah.
1: So unfortunately, we are running out of time, and I am sure our audience has more questions to be addressed. To wrap up this episode, Juan, give us a preview of your collaborative group project on post-conflict violence in Colombia in one minute. Tell oh us
0: about <laughs> well, this book. <laughs> that has been the evolution. This started as a collaboration with, with like, uh, colleagues at the University of in Colombia and, and the Peace Research Institute in Frankfurt, and it was basically about this, these two papers and one paper actually and that became two. And then as we kept looking and looking and looking at our cases, we saw a lot of complexity uh, at the case level that we couldn't Bring into the articles. So we decided, well, this has to become a book. And as you mentioned, there's some. Uh, we think about the municipalities as our unit of analysis for most of our analysis, but in many cases, we started seeing, well, there's just an enormous variation within municipalities. So some of these municipalities are pretty big territorial units, and the dynamics within these municipalities, the municipality of Tumaco on the Colombian Pacific coast comes to mind. You can't just subsume one dynamic for one municipality, but within them, you can make subnational, subnational analysis <laughs> of some municipalities. So we decided that in order to be at least more mindful and of, of this complexity, we would make this into a book that has the results that we've presented with some improvements in these published articles with this kind of richer case study information, but also trying to get the Colombian case and bring it in a more comparative perspective. So we're trying also to connect, well, what is this type of violence? How do we see it happening in other contexts? Maybe not only of post-conflict settings, but others of, of a more, more criminal violence. Could we see any parallels? Does the Clement case help us understand other cases? So we're trying to connect this in our book more systematically with like broader trends across the world.
1: So Juan, thank you so much for joining us today, and it was a real pleasure to have you here and talk about this worrisome phenomenon happening in Colombia. Dear listeners, stay tuned to the following episode of Global Stage, featuring research and work in progress by faculty, graduate students, and fellows affiliated to the Kellogg Institute.
0: You've been listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage.